was used to billing in six minute time blocks. Yeah. So every six minutes meant something. So to waste yeah. hours and hours of the day. Just, just to have someone say, what are you doing? You know, was enough for me to say, oh, okay, nothing. I'll do something. You know, um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was just a motivator. And then having someone to bounce ideas off. Uh, or even remind me of things to do or to be able to delegate things to, um, yeah, it has been amazing. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy and welcome to The Naked Creative Show, a creative lifestyle blog designed to explore the processes that make achieving creative goals possible for anyone. At thenakedcreativeshow.com, you'll find thought starters and tools to help you begin or refine your artist's journey. Tom Blatchford and Kate Bellis are one of my favorite creative couples. They are both photographers, though this hasn't always been the case. For the first few years of their relationship, it was only Tom who was the photographer, while Kate was working as a lawyer. What started as a shared passion between them has grown into a thriving art practice and an ever-expanding business. Initially, to support their travel adventures, they built a highly successful wedding photography business called Raspberry Robot. It was on one such journey that Tom fell in love with the architecture of Palm Springs. This led him to create the internationally successful, highly reblogged and iconic Midnight Modern series, which has a Sydney exhibition opening this Thursday, May 26, at the Black Eyed Gallery in Darlinghurst. Of all the insights into their life and process that they shared, it was the way in which they combined their strengths to maximize both of their offerings as artists that I really admired. I was really excited to sit down and chat with Tom and Kate about sharing a life, sharing a space, and sharing a practice in this The Naked Creative Show Couples Edition, all about Tom Blatchford and Kate Ballas. Thank you so much for coming to have a chat, guys. Thanks for coming That's over. Okay. Thank you. So, this isn't going to be an interesting chat because you guys are two creative kids who have a creative process that is in tandem with each other and linked to each other's work. Well, actually, let's start off with talking about what it is that you do. What do you do? Um, I'm a photographer. I shoot mainly interiors and architecture nowadays, um, as well as fine art that is geared also in that sphere of interiors and architecture, um, and that's kind of a new journey for me, being an artist, uh, as well as a commercial photographer. And yeah, how long have you been thinking about yourself as an artist, as, as opposed to just a commercial photographer? Um, yeah, that's a journey that's been hard to grapple with. Um, probably... Uh, I guess I threw around the word for a few years, but probably in the last year since I had success with the Midnight Modern series that I've kind of realised by a process of deduction that I guess I have to be an artist, even though it was something that I never thought of myself as. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say a year um, of committing to that. I'm a photographer and my focus is on portraiture and lifestyle photography um we also travel the world a lot so uh through that i document both lifestyle of the countries that we visit and also more artistic work um so i create little projects over there or i'm documenting beautiful landscapes and then we do a little bit of work together we sometimes shoot weddings um we sometimes create projects together it's lots of fun yeah, I feel like you guys are really active. You also both, I feel, are doing what many people would love to do, which is you just do, do your passion as your day job mm. and life hobby, which I think is kind of the goal for many people. So, you know, that's, I think, interesting. And we'll talk more about how you've come to be able to do that. But to go back to the beginning of, I suppose, the beginning of that post-high school journey into doing what you guys do now, Tom, did you study? Yeah, I left, uh, I left high school and went and studied marketing because I thought I'd be good at it. And 
I turned up at uni fresh out of school at 18 and did not cope well in the institution at all. Um, didn't enjoy it, was pretty disillusioned by the whole process. Um, didn't really feel like I was learning anything. Um, yeah, and by the end of the first year, felt pretty crap and failed a lot of subjects and um, I guess was pretty lost at that point. And then uh, I was given a camera for my 20th birthday. So I guess it was a couple of years into my degree and that kind of changed everything. And I just loved it and you were there taking lots of photos of everything and everyone and everywhere. And uh, yeah, and then kind of got encouraged by everybody else in my life, I guess, that saw me wanting to do something and um, got a lot of support for people that pushed me into doing it. Did you finish the degree? The I did. Degree? I deferred it for almost as long as I could for nearly two years and moved to London for a little bit for about six months. And then um, I met Kate when I got back and she kind of convinced me to finish it because why not? So I finished it over a year. Uh, but... I, I don't I didn't really see any benefit in being back. It kind of just put me behind in my career for a year of being distracted and unhappy. Uh, so I never even went to my graduation. I got my certificate and my thought was that the little like crest red bow thing that was on it wasn't even a stamp. It was like a really crappy low res file that they'd got off Google. And I just remember looking at the pixels and thinking that's shit. Um, that was my main that was the end of that chapter yeah and with a poorly printed yeah, <laughs> low yeah, low with a crappy DPI. low res uh, little crest it was it was not worth any of the time or the heartache well we'll go back to i mean i from my observation feel like you've got a particularly good grasp of marketing and we'll talk about that later on when we get more to the present stuff but i feel like you would have gleaned something that was worthwhile I suppose so. I guess there was a couple of subjects that focused on marketing, but there was a lot that was just kind of very crunchy accounting, numbers, statistics, things that would only be good in a big business and that, you know, I didn't, know, I didn't even know what tax returns were or how to file. It didn't, it didn't prepare me for anything small business related. But yeah, look, I think I have an understanding of marketing or at least to be able to flip the switch to realize that I am the product or that my service... I'm, I'm in service marketing, so I have to be able to, uh, yeah, market myself. Um, so, yeah, I guess I learned some stuff by osmosis. Um, it's hard to separate what the benefits were. I feel like I could watch a half an hour YouTube on how to put together a marketing plan and it would be just as beneficial as my four, whatever it was, four years of failing subjects and going to RMIT. Yeah. And what about you, Kate? Did you go to uni? Yes, I actually studied, first of all, um, Meter and Communications, uh, which is an arts degree, and then within a year of that, I transferred to also do Law as well as Meter and Communications, um, which then put me on an interesting path, because I first of all thought, oh, Meter and Communications, I'll get into the media industry, uh, and then lots of people were studying Law as well, and I thought, hmm, maybe that will give me a competitive edge, and then I thought... Maybe I'd be interested in being a media and entertainment lawyer. Um, so I went along that path for a good six years of study, including um, some professional education at the end to get admitted as a lawyer. Uh, and then I worked in a law firm as a media and entertainment lawyer for four years. And at what point in that journey did a photography practice make itself you know apparent and then desirable and then irresistible so just before so at the after the end of my university degree before I was doing the professional education I met Tom so that was six years ago and he was already dabbling in photography and had a real passion for it I was calling and myself a photographer I just wasn't making much money and didn't really know what I wanted to do but I was it, it was my sole source of income I just needed to get a bit better um but we then started traveling together and I guess I think it was every six months I kept on upgrading my camera because it couldn't do all of the things that Tom's camera could do and he was teaching me uh, how to use it properly and I think within about 
When did we do our first wedding? Maybe 2011? Yeah, maybe okay. 2010, 2011. Uh, I started photographing alongside Tom at weddings. Um, I had some travel stories in magazines. I just kept on asking more and more questions and made sure I was upgrading my gear and had the best tools available and then it suddenly clicked that I could do this at a professional level but I was still in the law firm and I guess once you're in a law firm you're on a path to go from junior lawyer to associate to senior associate and um, it was quite scary thinking about leaving that regimented path and pursuing something where I didn't even know how much income I could make. Um, so for a couple of years, I was really content doing it on the side. Uh, I was working really hard at the law firm and then I would come home every evening and be editing photos from the weddings we were shooting or my own personal work. Um, on the weekends, I would be shooting full days and then Sundays editing again. So I guess the sacrifice there was not seeing friends and family so much. Thankfully, I had Tom there on that journey. Um, and then it got to the stage where it was time to take the leap of faith and quit and do photography full-time. I'd also stayed out of it because it seemed ridiculous to come in and into her life after she'd been on this road for 10 years of getting to a lawyer and say, that's shit, you're not happy, you should quit. But because it just seemed like I was, I don't know, it didn't, it seemed like it, it didn't feel fair to shake up her life, even though I was in it. But then it kind of got to a point where I realised that if I'd met her in a kitchen at a party and she was telling me about her life and I was drunk and honest, I would have said, you're, that's shit, you're not happy, you should quit. So I should probably apply that advice to, you know, the person that I loved. So, yeah, it took me a while to say, um, you know, this... I don't want you to do what I'm doing because I think it's great and I'm trying to justify it. I think it, it could be great for both of us. And do you think that that was... I mean, how long were you doing in tandem law life by day and passion life by night? I would say solidly about two and a half years. Mm. So I was quite burnt out by the end of it. Um, and I wasn't happy at the law firm. I probably could have made... a the choice to leave and go to another law firm that would probably have made me a bit happier but it was really hard knowing what your passion was and knowing that your day job in the law firm was not your passion and then seeing your life partner living out that passion as his day job um yeah the choice became quite evident yeah i also I guess struggled with work ethic at that point of kind of Kate would get up at seven and go off and I'd kind of lounge around the house and maybe go out for lunch and wasn't really doing that much proactively to complete work or find work so I guess I realised as well that it would be great to have Kate around if she could bring that lawyer work ethic to me then mm -hmm. uh, if she could put you know even half as much effort as she put in at the law firm into me or us that we would probably do well. And, yeah. That's a really interesting idea, which I think a lot of creatives who aren't naturally geared towards structure, mm. structuring a, 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 a business ethic lifestyle mm. towards their practice. Mm. What did having Kate around change or what sort of, what sort of structure did you put into place once <laughs> she started, it, you know... It wasn't, there wasn't any whip cracking. It was just kind of like, well she would stay we'd sleep a little later but then it was like okay it's time to get up and and i just... was used to billing in six minute time blocks yeah. so every six minutes meant something so to waste yeah. hours and hours of the day just, just to have someone say what are you doing you know was enough for me to say oh, okay nothing i'll do something you know um <laughs> it was yeah it was just a motivator and then having someone to bounce ideas off uh, or even remind me of things to do or to be able to delegate things to, um, yeah, has been 
amazing. And it's also been good for uh, the editing process, which can become quite monotonous when you're sitting in front of the computer for maybe six hours at a time. Um, because I had that concentration that I required from the law practice, then I could do a lot of our mutual retouching and just sit there for six hours, have a break, yeah, I don't really, go back to I don't it. really edit. Um, so I've, it was a little bit of a workhorse. Yeah. And then, yeah, I've, I've kind of realised that whether you want to call it ADD or just impatience, I find it really difficult to sit and edit for any period of time. Um, so I gave up trying. I, I was angsty with myself that I couldn't sit there um, and do anything for a long period of time. But now I've just kind of structured life that I don't need to, that I have a retoucher who does work and that, um, yeah, I've... I delegate all the stuff that I that I just can't do. I can shoot all day and have meetings all day and talk all day and look at inspiration all day, but when it comes to sitting down and like pumping something out, I, I struggle. That's a really interesting concept, actually, the idea of... Because when you are working out what your practice looks like, there's two schools of thought that you can step into and out of as much as you want, and I'm working that out for myself as well. One is, do I work out where my strengths lie and delegate everything that I don't like doing and therefore will do twice, take twice as long to do as someone who is naturally geared towards that? Yeah. Or do I bite the bullet, learn to do it and get better at it? Because oftentimes when you, you know, since childhood you're taught to practice and get better at things yeah. that are challenging. Yeah. And then at some stage in your adult creative life you go, as a matter of fact, I, I will never be good at this because yeah. I hate it. And yeah. Someone's much more naturally geared towards this process. Yeah. Should we point out what that noise is? Yeah, that, <laughs> that is the sound of a dog having lunch about a metre away from our microphones. Yeah. She's grazing. <laughs> That's how she stays so svelte. Yeah, uh, yeah look, I, I guess I will tackle other challenges, um, but for me it's worked really well. I've been able to do more of the things that I'm good at and get even better at them instead of becoming mediocre at the things I'm really bad at. Um, that's that's probably just for me. I know that making things habitual, you know, can work. If you can do something every day for two weeks, you'll probably, you know, stay doing it forever. And I guess that works for things that you need to do as a habit or a schedule. But in terms of patience, I just couldn't find it. Um, I... I can't tap into it anywhere it seems uh social media and and stuff like that certainly doesn't help um having this compulsive urge to check all these stupid platforms um is is bad and i know that when i am distracted that's where i end up and i kind of find myself sitting on facebook thinking what the hell am i doing here i don't even know how i got here um so yeah i've just kind of taken away the workload that leads me down that path well, I'd love to talk more about that because in terms of how you structure a, a work day in terms of research and, or, or the post-production work, I'm intrigued about how that looks for you. So we'll get to that in a moment, but just to touch back on that process of being in your early 20s, getting a camera, having that... Uh, uh, how long after receiving the camera could you... Could that be your sole source of income, Tom? Uh, I... Defer. I quit my job. I was working retail at the time. I quit my job after maybe a year, I think, and deferred and kind of put through myself into it. Um, and I mean, in retail, I wasn't really making much money, like casual work, four hours a week kind of thing, you know, hard to get hours. Um, so just enough yeah. to like get you to the disco. And yeah, stuff. exactly. <laughs> you know, or, but hopefully drink cards were provided. Um, uh, yeah, it, it became my sole source of income, uh, about a year and a bit later. Um, at the time I was working for an agency, Life Lounge, um, that did all sorts of stuff. We're kind of an advertising creative agency and I was kind of just doing odd jobs for them. Um, but they would also throw me some kind of photography gigs, um, cause I was cheap and, and did a pretty good job and, or I started shooting music for them. So kind of cut my teeth shooting gigs and bands and festivals and stuff like that. Was that your first sort of paid work, which was live events? Yeah, yeah, which I wasn't that good at. Um, looking back, I didn't particularly have a grasp of 
what was going to happen on stage, um, of what I needed my camera to do. Um, yeah, I would say that that wasn't, that wasn't my calling. Um, so I kind of dabbled in everything for the next two, nearly three years, kind of taking whatever came my way. What, when you say everything, is that all sorts of different jobs? Yeah, oh, no, so, all, all sorts of photography jobs. Everything with a camera, but, you know, shooting food, shooting people, shooting fashion, shooting um, pretty much anything that anyone would offer me, I'd say yes to. Uh, and then it got to a point where one of the things that I was offered was to shoot interiors, and it seemed to be the thing that came most naturally that uh, I was taking, I'd press the button, and the picture that would come up on the back of the camera looked like something that I really liked, you know. Um, I don't know if you've heard that Ira Glass talk, The Gap, where he talks about, um, maybe you can play it for your listeners, he, he talks about the really frustrating gap when you're getting into something, you have good taste, but the work that you're producing is a long way away, and you know that, you know that because you have taste, you know there's this huge gap between the work you're producing and the work you want to produce, and that's really frustrating. Uh, and then eventually you will close that gap, but the only way to do it is to produce a lot of work and try a lot of things, uh, and there's no real shortcut to it. But, you know, eventually, hopefully, if you stick with it and don't quit, which is very hard to do, and a lot of people quit at this point, but you can, yeah, you can start to, you know, make the work that you admire. Um, so I think interiors was the first time that I felt like that gap was the smallest, and so I kind of threw myself into that, um, and then it also became easier having narrowed that focus to work out who I wanted to work for and what that path looked like and who my competitors were and uh, I guess focused my energy on that. Who was the first person who ever asked you to shoot an interior? Um, a, a lovely lady um, named Margie Bromelo. Oh, bro, sorry. <clears throat> Bromelo, um, who was a friend's mum uh, and she, I'm not sure why she decided to put her faith in me, um, but she did, uh, and I think, yeah, it worked out pretty well for both of us. Was it a, this is a space, this is an apartment for sale, can you photograph it or something? Uh, like it was, yeah, she designed some stuff and, uh, and needed it documented, um, and, and decided to give me a try, um, and so I think the first house I shot was, was worth five million dollars or something, and had this amazing art collection, I didn't even know what most of it was at the time. Um, but it worked out well, um, and yeah, that's kind of the path that I've been on since then. And what does that look like? So in, by the time you were, what age were you when Margie Bromelow pro- propositioned you? <laughs> uh, I think that was probably the same year that I met Kate, so um, it would have been uh, six years ago now, so I would have been, I think, 22 or 23. And have you actively pursued commercially shooting architecture and then paralleled that with uh, with passion projects around architecture at the same time. Um, yes and no. I, my passion for architecture has grown. The, originally, the the passion projects um, were mostly to do with travel. I just find that although I love Melbourne and it's my home and my city, and I find it so nourishing, I'm not really inspired when I'm here. I don't, my eye isn't really on. We tend to when we travel, everything's new, everything's different, um, and that's when. Uh, both of us are really producing our best work or our most interesting work that wasn't sort of tainted by anybody else's desires. It was just, you know, exactly impulsively what we wanted to shoot. When Kate, when your journey of photographing while travelling begun, mm. is that the entry into, th- into thinking of yourself as I could do this as a, for a living, I could do this full-time? Yes, I think so. Um, Well, it was definitely a time when we were travelling, well, we still travel a lot, but we were travelling a lot and I was fine-tuning my skills and Tom would give me lots of challenges and he would push me. What's an example of a challenge? (laughs) Oh, it would be in New Zealand, let's say, and he'd say, all right, from now on, and I never used the manual functions on my new little camera and he said okay from now on you're only shooting on manual you can make as many mistakes as you like but um this is what you're gonna do and um what other little challenges did you give me i don't know take portraits um i don't know did you have to overcome any um 
apprehension to approach strangers to ask them if you could photograph them? Yes, and I still get a little bit nervous, um, especially when there's a language barrier. So let's say we're traveling in a Spanish-speaking country, I've picked up the basics, but um, you really do hope that they understand that you have good intentions and you're not going to exploit them. When we were in Belize a couple of years ago, I was taking some photos um, some portraits of the locals in Key Corka and one man just said outright don't you dare take my photo someone once took my photo and look it's all over the postcards everywhere and I think sometimes people have the sense that you're going to exploit their image um, but I am always a little bit nervous going up to strangers and and asking to take their picture but then once you get into the swing of things kind of build up your confidence a bit and usually I'll put in a good 10 minutes chatting to them before I then casually say can I take your photo which means a lot as far as the trust goes but also means that I get a better portrait because I know what story I'm telling. Do you think um, with, with similar to Tom's moment, aha moment, looking at his first interior and thinking oh this is something that is that I like, I can mm. do more of this was there a type of photography that landed with you in a similar way? Probably portraiture. I think I'd done a lot of travel work and that had involved portraits. And then just very soon after I finished up at the law firm, I started photographing portraits for the National Gallery of Victoria magazine. Um, and compared to other types of work that I'd done, like fashion and maybe events, that portraiture really felt right. Um, and I still feel that way about landscapes. I really enjoy shooting landscapes and I feel like that's a calling as well. And, and so in terms of how you guys structure your, you know, you very interestingly talked about Kate coming into your world and giving you a new perspective on how to structure your mm. process what does and I don't know if it's the same now that you've joined forces or there are two still two processes working in tandem in the same couple in the same household but what does a day spent working look like for either of you now uh, I'd say there's no two days ever the same the only constant is that the dog gets two walks um and other than that, everything else is different. Um, some days, if if I was shooting, then I'd get up early, do nothing the night before, certainly never drink, certainly not be tired, um, be well rested, go and shoot all day, which at this time of summer can be a very long day, it's kind of 8 in the morning till 9 p.m. Um, days when we are not, or when I'm not shooting, um, as I said before, I've kind of outsourced the kind of grunt work, so I'm a bit freer to um, relax or... What sort of work do you like to outsource? Uh, so retouching is, is basically the grunt work that I, that I outsource. Um, that's kind of processing all the files and liaising with the clients to work out the stuff that they would like done to them. In terms of structuring your... So if, if you had a day to yourself... Mm. What is the first thing that you would... So say, for example, someone said, you know, you were meant to start this job on Wednesday. As a matter of fact, it's starting Thursday. Now, Wednesday is entirely yours. What do you think? Oh, yes, now I'm so glad I can do this. Uh, look, to be honest, I'm probably not the right person. To, Kate will have a better answer to this. I am usually, for some reason, a little behind on stuff, um, either invoicing or just, like, a tiny bit of editing or something that's got to get done. Um, I find myself a little bit behind, so it will usually be a catch-up day. Um, I'm trying to get myself to a point where I'm ahead of everything so that on that day I can say, oh, screw it, I'm just going to go to the National Gallery and walk around or have lunch with friends. But I find that regardless of whether I'm working on a day, I feel like I should be working, so um, I don't do as much as I should. Um, Kate, on the other hand, has lots of great things to do on a day off. <laughs> So if I have a free day, then I get really excited about working on my own projects with my photos, either sitting at the kitchen table and going through all of our art books and coming up with new ideas and then start brainstorming those projects. Or maybe I'll 
jump into some photos I took overseas and start editing them and trying to create a story with them. Um, we try to watch documentaries. Um, just a day off for me is an inspiration day. I've recently received some beautiful soft pastels and had a day off and I started drawing, making pastel paintings of some of my photos. I get really excited about a day off. I, I love that you apply the same sort of discipline to your creative process as you would have to your much more sensible legal lawyer process. I feel like that mm. is, and I think that the only way I have ever become better at my stuff is by being applying a rigidity that is actually contradictory to the fluidity of creativity, mm. but that is necessary to give yourself a structure to be have fun in or be creative in, mm. but sleeping late and wasting the day and, you know, meandering through without doing anything that but social media. stresses mm. me out. It kind of stresses me out mm. too, yeah. Yeah, the social media thing's got to go. Uh, I, I just still find myself drawn to it. We were listening to a good interview with Aziz Ansari, who is the comedian, whatever you think of him and his work, but he was saying that he finds it really frustrating, and, and I mirror this, that I sit on my phone and I'm like, I'm bored with this feed, and then there's a bookshelf a metre away from me that's full of books of people who you know led amazing lives that are inspiring and have been inspiring for decades. And, yeah, he kind of said that he feels he's, like, up to the 500,000th page of the worst book ever written, and, you know, he can't put it down. And I feel the same. I, I, need, to, I need to get off it. It's, it's, you know, turning my brain to mush. So you've, you've mentioned, you know, an Ira Glass quote and Aziz Ansari interview, the documentaries. It sounds like you guys are actively consuming inspirational content from less traditional sources. Yeah. What other stuff are you doing to, to, to fill your well? It's a common term that I use too much, but ultimately to I also like the term uh, impregnate your thoughts. It just knock up your mind with ideas. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Pre-gestation. Tell yeah. me. Um, Whenever we're travelling, we make sure we see absolutely every gallery that there is in a tiny little town or a big city. And some of them might not be highly rated, but we'll just go and we'll wander through. And um, I'm constantly taking little pictures of artwork and then the artist and referring back. So that's another thing I'll do on my days off is... I'll go back through all of the little um, photos I've taken from galleries around the world and then start researching those artists. And um, it's, yeah, it's just time that I have to do that, whereas we may not have time during a regular work day to find those kind of inspirations. And we're always trying to... We've got a projector installed at home. We're always trying to watch something that's creatively inspiring. Yeah. We just had a little bit of a binge on a very uncreative show and I can't wait to get back into it. Making a murderer. It was pretty, it's pretty juicy. Yeah. I can't wait to get back into something a bit more visually stimulating. Yeah. Gosh, I feel like everyone, every creative should have a Kate in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Just to take them to the neck level. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I think <clears throat> books and other artworks. I think... Uh, yeah, gathering inspiration from the widest range of sources, I think, leads to more interesting work, which is kind of the concept of that great artist steel book that's just, there's, originality is, is a subjective thing and it's probably already gone, but you can remix and rehash and, and bring together ideas that have never been put together before. Um, yeah, I, I haven't really actioned it, but I did have... Uh, in in a notebook from our last trip just a bunch of subjects and media and sort of techniques that I want to explore just by kind of matching up any two of them to see what it does um, but yeah then it kind of gets to the day off and then I'm not doing that well you're yeah. like you remind me of me and I feel like one thing I'm taking away from this interview is follow through I think your mm -hmm. Kate your follow through is actually really good you don't oh, just yeah. make the notes in your book <clears throat> you then set aside some time to then take those notes and action them via mm. research and connecting the dots. And that's where the actual important stuff takes place. I think it's one thing to go to the gallery. It's another thing to write the artist's name down, which I definitely do. That, those 
notes stay in books on bookshelves unread mm. by me mm. that and i feel like the process only gets a tenth of the way yeah and actually doing the i mean you were even saying that you make an effort to consume inspiration away from photography because that cross pollinates your work yeah um i think one of the my greatest inspirations at the moment is going to galleries and seeing uh there's a mixed media projects or more sculptural projects and thinking well how can I integrate that with photography or even thinking beyond photography and thinking about other mediums to tell the same story that I want to tell have you thought about branching out beyond photography uh, I, w- I would love to I would love to explore many other mediums namely painting and drawing things like that but I do admit that I'm a beginner with all those mediums. So if I start branching out into that, you might have to check in in 10 years' time. And, hey, um, you were a beginner with I, photography yeah, five true, years ago. True, well, maybe five years' time. It's, <laughs> it's really hard to... Once I've practised a lot. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I, I kind of have whimsical fantasies of, of doing painting and stuff as well. But I, yeah, I... I do have fear about going back to being a beginner at something, being crap at something, having to close another gap. Um, it, I guess it wears on you. It's, it's really exciting and the options are boundless of what you could do. But yeah, the thought of being crap at something again doesn't appeal to me. Why don't you guys set yourself the challenge of being really crap at something in 20, by the end of 2016? Yeah. yeah. Like e- each choose one discipline, either like the same discipline or something different and just go, you know what? Like let's just spend a few months being shit at yeah. something utterly mm. new yeah, and then see where you are in a year's time. Yeah. What do you yeah. want to choose? Uh, I don't know. We'll see I'd what. love to see your painting. Uh, so would I, but I don't know what I'd paint. Exactly. But, but that's, then the that's the exciting part. Mm. But I need, so, yeah. to, I need to approach it in a different way. I think the way that I originally approached photography or the way I approached art was to look at the stuff that I didn't even really like but that I thought was really difficult and sort of beat myself up that I wasn't producing that stuff, even though I didn't want to produce that stuff. So it's kind of like with painting, I would love to just paint squares, bright colored squares on a canvas. I don't have to paint, you know, that's utterly valid. an epic Napoleon war scene, you know, 20 meters wide. But a part of me does say, well, why can't you do that? So that's, you can. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a part of my brain that I've got to um, quiet down. Yeah, I feel like I... And I feel like that was um, what made me transitioning to being an artist very difficult because I concentrated on the art that I felt was confusing and pretentious and excluded people and thought that I didn't like it. But I wasn't concentrating on the art that was really nice and I could appreciate and that I could understand. Do you think that was a mental block in terms of thinking that the work you were doing was moving into art territory... Did you have to get over a hurdle into thinking of yourself as an artist? Yeah, I guess. Um, I I, I kind of call myself a deducive creative. That I the way that I kind of shoot and the way that I approach things is that I remove elements. I don't really create things. So, I when I photograph an interior, I just walk into a room and I choose everything that I hate, and then I get rid of all of it, and then that's the photo that's left the one that has the fewest things that I hate in it. Um, well, why don't you look at maybe one of the photos that you've taken overseas and look at all the elements in the photo that you hate that you wouldn't be able to Photoshop out and then paint it without that? Maybe. That's, That's a, a really good, good idea. idea. Anyway, my point is, I guess, at the point when I had an exhibition and there was lots of people there and the work was selling and it was on the wall and it was art, then is I kind of had... Mid- to, Midnight Modern? Yeah. That was, I guess, when I kind of had to deduce wool this this looks like art i guess i guess i'm an artist you know i guess i created it i created it because i wanted to it was impulsive it was exactly what i felt like doing at the time so yeah i guess it i realized that what i was doing shared all those properties what was it about the was it viewing architecture in 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 palm springs primarily isn't it was it viewing architecture and then was that the starting point and then did you think well how how do I want to see this and that like what's the process of it was more it was almost a competitive thing of how how can I be original here I can't remember what the word is there's a word in German that describes this paralyzing fear of doing something unoriginal or the knowing that you can't do anything new um, 
And in a place like that, where there's just tourists constantly walking around during the day, taking photos of all these houses from the same angles because that they're on the street, that's all you can do. It felt like everything had been done. So it was my one kind of shot at uh, doing it in a different way. Um, and then the results from that kind of snowball that it made people feel something different about those houses just by capturing it in a different way. For those that are listening that don't know, Midnight Modern is a series that Tom did where the architecture of Palm Springs were photographed at night yeah, by, very moonlight. Long, by yeah. moonlight, very yeah. long exposures. Yes. And the result from my eye is a very Lynchian, terrifying, kind of ha like haunting, nightmarish view of Americana, but in this really beautiful retro sensibility. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the stuff that I've come across via other mediums of yours, this is the one that pops up in people's Tumblr feeds and, you know, people loved it because I think, you know, they, it was familiar on the one hand, but utterly new on the other hand, which yeah. is an interesting way to appeal to a really broad... Community. Yeah, I, it would seem to just be right place, right time, and, and uh, right for me. I love the process of shooting. I love, it's kind of, it's, it's boring standing there for four minutes waiting for a camera to take a photo, but it's exciting because I'm sneaking around mm. in the dark, you know, at four in the morning, it kind of... Uh, it's a fun process. Did you have to reach out to the homeowners before you did that? Uh, the first two trips, no. I didn't tell anyone who I was or what I was doing. I didn't know anyone in Palm Springs. But since then, the, the resulting four trips since then, uh, I've, I've developed a very deep connection with the community and, and lots of people in it. And, uh, and I've met lots of the homeowners who are very uh, interested in in the series and very happy to have their homes photographed so it's it's kind of turned around but I still do a little bit of sneaking around. Did you have to take early versions of the work to by, by the third or fourth trip did you were you taking examples of the work to say this is what I want to do for you? Uh, I, I just sort of showed them the the previous works and said this is what I've been doing it will be a pretty, pretty similar result for your place I just you know need your house um, and and uh, everyone was quite into it. Fabulous. Yeah. Mm. Um, in, in terms of your um, current passion projects, Kate, what are you investing your energy in when it's not commercial? Um, at the moment, I'm tinkering around with some uh, editing of these photos I took of rocks in Victoria that even from... A, Okay, I should say first. I've flipped them upside down. Even straight up, they look like they could be take they could be aerials of the Grand Canyon or something. And then I've flipped them upside down to make them look surreal. And I'm now tinkering with the idea of putting some, uh, compositing some photos of trees on top to make it look like it was an aerial taken in this foreign alien world. Because you've done aerials for real, haven't yes, you? Yes, yes. Mm. We hop up in helicopters as often as possible, um, often for commercial clients, and then we'll take our own photos on the way to and from right. the so, airport. Because I've seen... Oh, so, so commercial clients send you up they in helicopter? They might send us all the way north side, but we hop in the helicopter in Moorabbin Airport, so we pass along the beach. And, and why are they sending you up in helicopter? Uh, aerial views, a lot of property developers and other people need aerial views of sites and things like that. Um, but we've also been lucky to work with some branding agencies that appreciate the kind of aesthetic that we shoot from a helicopter. So have commissioned us to sort of do a photo essay on an area from that perspective. Um, so we've been lucky that sort of the, the original helicopter trip was a, an hour in a helicopter was a birthday present from Kate. And then that sort of spawned two series two distinct series, and then they sort of went a bit viral, and then that spawned more commercial work, which it's all sort of fed into itself. Mm, and we're going to go up in a helicopter. We're going to Argentina in two weeks' time for a little holiday, um, and we're hoping to go up in a helicopter there as well to see some of those foreign landscapes from above. So, yeah, whenever we get a chance to go up, then it's we so, take it. It makes so much sense as well because in a, the result of those journeys give... Uh, it, Celebrate people's love for the space, but show them, show it to them in a way they've never seen it before. Mm, yeah, and so it's a really nice way. That's what we try to do as often as possible. Yeah, I kind of took the the uh, the phrase showing it in a new light or from a different perspective. I kind of took that quite literally, or tried to, as the helicopter that everything looks different and amazing from a thousand feet in the air, or it looks different by moonlight to what we are able to 
experience with our senses, with our eyes, with our physical capabilities that we can't experience those kind of two things. Um, so I found that really interesting. And, and even with technology being what it is and social being what it is and us getting access to so many views and ideas of the world, you still manage to present things that you can't get anywhere else, which I think is probably... Yeah, well, I think... a challenge. Yeah, we're, we're trying to raise the stakes to realise that, yeah, we're now living in an age where more photos are taken, you know, every every hour than was taken in previous decades, you know, where everyone has a camera in their pocket, so we have to do something that raises the stakes a little bit for, you know, what's possible um, to try and create something new or show something. My work is more showing something that exists in a new way, um, showing it to people in a way that makes them think about it. And in terms of, if I were to check in with you this time next year, what's one thing, or a series of things, but any key achievements you would love to have under your belt in the next chapter of your creative exploration? Um, I would definitely love to have a couple of exhibitions. Um, that's, a, that's something that I'm working towards. Yeah, I think I would like to say that I'm further progressed in the, in the fine art stuff as well, um, both mentally and within myself and my own identity in that, but also in the work that I'm producing and the way that it's received and um, the way that it's collected as well. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that this year... I've got a show booked in Sydney in May and I'm hoping that will go well and lead to some other things. And maybe even lead to some Sydney clients for your commercial work as well. Yeah. Oh, and we want to do meditation. That's like yeah. a big ambition for the year. How would... Do you think about what that would look like, a daily practice? Um, daily, I hope it would be morning, night, and then whenever we're in a more natural, beautiful environment. Um, and I think that we both want to do a one to be a little more relaxed and also to open up our creativity a bit more. Mm. That's probably the second reason for doing it. Yeah, it seems that, uh, yeah, there seems to be a lot of discussion at the moment about creativity and meditation and um, I guess the links of, of broad kind of links across all sort of health benefits, but um, just the concept of awareness and and, um, and being present um, can really help connect you to your ideas and also to your motivation and just give you... Uh, the energy to do those things. Mm. And I, I imagine when I'm really... Because I've been experimenting with that as well and trying to have a daily, a daily practice of some kind, even if it's just 10 minutes or something. But I imagine that when I'm really on board with that, the ability to focus and not squander energy on yeah. social media bullshit and yeah. all that sort of thing will be really good. I, I'll think of that thing... Because sometimes I go, do you know what would be terrible right now? If I wasted my afternoon on social media and then I'll find myself doing yeah. it five minutes later. Yeah. I'm sure that the, the ability to keep your mind on the task yeah. will get better. Absolutely. I actually tried, Tom's got this Buddhify app out. I tried out one of the meditations for sitting at the computer, which is interesting. If we can actually be more present while we're editing or researching or doing emails, that would be highly just even, beneficial. Even breathing, concentrating on breathing, I found really helpful. But yeah, I'm just showing you this app, Buddhify, where it's kind of broken down into all the different times of, of a day that mm. you... And they're kind of little bite-sized meditations of about 7 to 12 minutes. Great. Um, so in each one you can say going to sleep, can't sleep, eating, walking, travelling. Uh, there's kind of a uh, guided meditation for all of those different things. So at and any time of the day. And the interface is really beautiful as yeah, well. It's yeah, a really, it's a really great app. Um, there's another app that's that's interesting that's called Pause that's kind of uh, a Zen app where you follow a dot around. But I, I kind of question I whether uh, it, it frustrates me that the meditations are on this device that is the cause of so much of these problems that require me that I think will, I need to meditate to escape. Yes. Um, so I think that that pause one doesn't really work because following my finger around the device that is really the root of most of these problems is not mm. the solution. Oh, and then with the Buddhify app, they do the opposite. So let's say it's the going to sleep med meditation. They'll say, all right, you're going to be listening to this meditation on your phone, but then you're 
going to fall asleep. So make sure you've checked all your emails and done whatever else, set your alarm, done whatever else you need on the phone before you do this meditation because then your phone is away for the night and you've gone to sleep. Good one. Yeah, I feel like for the, maybe I feel like something like pause is good for someone who's so bound to their egoic, overactive mind mm. that they that stepping into something too meditative is actually going to be repulsive. Yeah. They need something in the phone mm. that they can use that is tricking them into calming down without uh, yeah. still using phone mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for having a chat. That's all right. Oh, I just wish this was visual so everyone could see how babin this view of mine is from this this side of the coffee table. Oh. Thanks so much. Thank you. Do you want to um, get some lunch? Yeah, that's a great idea. We should all go out for lunch. I gleaned a lot from my chat with Tom and Kate. One of my biggest takeaways was from Kate's notion of billing in six-minute increments as a lawyer. This means that as a creative, she places literal value on every minute she spends working. She seems to have a great way of compartmentalizing her time towards things like research or editing. Meanwhile, Tom's suggestion of focusing on the areas that he was good at gave me a lot to think about as well. I was interested in the idea of outsourcing activities that might otherwise slow you down or take your attention away from other things that you could do much more efficiently, and in Tom's case, that was growing his business and marketing himself. I love the notion that Kate's passion for photography was fostered by her exposure to it through Tom, and it made me wonder how many people out there might do the same thing if they were up close and personal with someone who was living their passion as Tom does. Yet Tom's own process seemed consolidated by joining forces with someone with Kate's strengths. It just seemed like a match made in creative heaven. I loved my chat with Tom and Kate, and I hope you did too. Don't forget that Tom's Midnight Modern Show opens this Thursday at the Black Eye Gallery in Darlinghurst. And Kate's most recent series on Iceland is currently available at The Hub in both Melbourne and Sydney. And there are links to both of these on the show page at thenakedcreativeshow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, the greatest compliment you can give is to share it with someone who might be able to use it. I'm Dan Brophy and I will see you next time on The Naked Creative Show.